0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, March 25th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The reader is Dick Lee. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com.
1: Good morning, church. Uh, We're still in 1 Peter. Um, We're in chapter 4. Uh, The reading this morning is uh, verse 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift... Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. So we're going through 1 Peter
0: And I've really enjoyed Peter, though it has made me perspire a little bit uh, as I've been inspired. Peter began his epistle, uh, if you recall, by talking about this idea of being born again. And because we have been born again in Christ, Peter says, because Jesus has chosen you and loved you and forgiven you and redeemed you and cleansed you and adopted you and made you different. He says, you have the power to live differently. And so Peter calls us to what can only be described as a pretty radical kind of life. And he does this because we have this new life now, but also this amazing future life waiting for us. Peter is constantly reminding his audience that there is a life to come. In different ways, at different times, he said, there is an inheritance waiting for you. That the trials of your life are producing a faith that's going to result in this future glory. That there is a fullness of grace to be brought to you at the return of Jesus Christ. He's always looking to the future, reminding his audience to look to the future. And so knowing that, he says, from our relationships to other authorities, for our relationships with our spouses and every other kinds of relationship, he says, this is how and what it means to live as someone who knows and loves Jesus while you're living temporarily in a very hostile world that doesn't love Jesus, that doesn't love his people and doesn't love his ways. He called us to some radical things. He says, I want you to endure suffering, combat this persecution that you are experiencing by arming yourselves with Christ-like thinking. What is Christ-like thinking? And You begin to look at how Christ lived and you can begin to see how he thought. Jesus willingly suffered for us. He didn't have to. Jesus willingly bore the penalty of our guilt. He willingly endured our shame. He willingly received the death that we deserve. He chose to suffer because he trusted God and he loved his people. So Peter says, think the same way. Embrace the cost of following Jesus and make a decision to suffer. Be ready to give up your lives or just your lifestyle, which perhaps is even harder for the one who gave up everything for you. That's the kind of thinking, he says, we're to arm ourselves with. And so over and over again, if you read through the epistle, it's only five chapters. If you read it kind of over and over, you'll see these these. Patterns or these phrases kind of repeat themselves. Setting your mind on certain things. Thinking this certain way. And it reveals to us that the the battle of faith is much more internal than it is external. That the truth that we can renew our minds with, as Paul says, right? Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So like this truth transforms our minds and then it affects and shapes our hearts and then that begins to change our behavior but you know lies have the same power lies can also affect your mind and shape your heart and affect your behavior and so the question is what are we filling our minds with truth God's truth or lies Now, our world is very noisy. More noisy than perhaps it's ever been in history. We have so much accessibility to so much information, both true and false, all the time. We are overwhelmed with the noise of the world. We are overwhelmed with the lies of the enemy. And we're also overwhelmed with a voice that we often ignore but it's quite powerful and that's the voice of our flesh. Telling us lies. False truths about God, about life, about ourselves. And it's continual. And it's deceitful. But often some of these lies are very appealing to our flesh. So this is why, not because it impresses God, not because it gives us more stars on the Christian star chart. This is why we devote ourselves to God's Word. This is is why we speak God's Word to one another. Why I need you to speak it to me and you need me to speak it to you. This is why we need to hear God's Word preached. This is why we gather to hear God's Word sung. Because we need to be shaped by truth. We need to be influenced by truth. I need to have it just saturate me so that I will live according to God's truth and not the lies of the world or my flesh or the enemy. And so, Peter, as he did explicitly in the very beginning of his epistle and as he hinted to last week, he is going to again challenge our thinking. He's going to challenge a particular lie, confront the lie that life goes on forever. The lie that tomorrow's guaranteed to come. The lie that we all have enough time to do fill in the blank. And remember, he's speaking to a specific kind of Christian experience, right? He's speaking to people who are suffering for their faith, socially, materially, even physically. But definitely people who have watched their brothers and sisters die for their faith. And this is what he is encouraging them. He says, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. The end is coming. Time is running out. Jesus is returning. And if you survey the New Testament, you'll see it's full of very urgent and and expectant language about Christ's return, implying that it's this thing called imminent. And the idea of imminent means it's likely to happen at any moment. The end of all things is likely to happen at any moment. We don't think that way. Functionally, we don't think that way. Even if we like, oh yeah, I, I know that. We don't live that way. The New Testament letters, we see the church is often told to be alert, be ready. These are the last days. And because we go, well, that was 2,000 years ago. I mean, clearly they were wrong, right? But there's an attitude that we are supposed to hold, and we certainly are closer to the end than they were, question is do do we think that way like how often do you think about the end of the world and the return of jesus i mean do you do you ever wake up and am like darn it didn't happen right we literally were sitting praying for sur- for service right in some motorcycle or plane it was loud like, and i'm like this is it guys this is it I literally have found myself waking up in the morning, checking the news, saying, I wonder if Jesus has returned. Right? Just waiting to, expecting, wanting that to happen. Do we, do we think about Jesus' return unless a pastor says, do you think of Jesus' return? Right? And even when we do think of it, okay, I'll give Jesus' return, yeah, that'll happen someday. But doesn't these, like, do we think it's soon? See, if you think the end of all things is imminent, could happen at any time, that will change the way you live. It has to. When you think about the end of all things, if I really believe the end of all things is near, like, um, I'm going to realize that I'm not, taking anything with me and so I better invest in things that are going to last beyond the end which eliminates a lot of the stuff let's be honest that we invest in not bad things necessarily but certainly not eternal things or for those who are suffering right those who are truly feeling pressed the idea that the end is coming like man that gives me hope like suffering doesn't last forever Or just that, like, okay, the end is coming. Like, I know, I, I'm I'm doing these good things in faith that they're going to glorify God. They're going to bless ever. Like, there is final reward and and there is final judgment coming. Like, how I live matters every moment. That we will give an account. Like that mentality. The end is okay. The end is coming. I'm going to see Jesus face to face. You know, for some, the end is a, is a warning. And for others, it's a real encouragement. But more than anything, like the idea of the end of all things is near, I believe compels us to live intentionally and eternally. To not concern ourselves too much with earthly things. The reality is we have to concern ourselves with some earthly things, but not too much. I read a phrase the other day as kind of a summary of our culture, and it was this idea that we think too much about too much today. Isn't that true? Like we just have so much that we can think about that it gets so noisy we don't think about the right things. Peter says, the end of all things is at hand, it's near, therefore, okay, so knowing this truth, the end is near, therefore, in response to that reality, live self-controlled and sober-minded lives. Why would I ever live an intentional life that is self-controlled and sober-minded? Because the end is coming. Our thinking does impact our living. Most of us believe the end is not coming as evidenced by how we invest in our lives. I'm guilty as well. See, when someone learns, and I've had this experience in the last couple months with different friends in different ways, you know when someone, and we know this, but I'm going to say it anyway, when someone learns they have a terminal illness, and they're actually given a specific time to expect to live. For many of us, we's was like, How, what a horrible thing. But dare I say, it might be one of the most amazing graces. Because that person, more than perhaps anyone else, knows in that moment, it becomes very clear what's most important. And it becomes very clear and they become very intentional about how they're going to invest the rest of their days. Where they truly find their treasure. That's what it means to live with the end of all things at hand. Now the world, like, the world lives how they want. Not the worst they could live, but they certainly live how they want because they don't really believe there's an actual end. They don't believe there's a judgment coming. I mean, practically speaking, they, for those who do not believe, they don't, ma- they don't really have hope beyond the earth and they don't have accountability beyond the earth either. More than anything, that's a result of not having a relationship with the Creator. Romans 1 tells us that. They're not grateful to their Creator. They've rejected what the Creator has said. They refuse to acknowledge Him or... Acknowledge his existence, though it's pretty clear that he does exist. But it's interesting what Peter says. A little phrase you may have read over. He says that you have this truth that the end of all things is near, therefore live self-controlled and sober-minded lives for the sake of your prayers. So when we talk about prayer, as Andrew hinted at, like what we're talking about, Intimate communion and communication with God the Father. Like coming into his presence and and relating to him intimately. Dare I say there's nothing more intimate in a relationship with God than prayer. We don't view it as that. We view it kind of like that's the vending machine to get what you want from God. Right? It's not what it is. But what Peter is saying, like, he's, he's going to give us really practical things that are not difficult to understand, even if they're difficult to live out. But he's going to like, you need to live this specific way. But what he reveals in just saying that phrase is that he is most concerned about how our living horizontally like this actually impacts our relationship with the Lord vertically. That these things are related. That the most important things is our relationship with God, and that is more than prayer, but it's also prayer that this relationship and how we live all works together. And I would argue that particularly how we view the future reveals the nature of our relationship with God the Father. James 4 has a very interesting passage that um, is Not difficult to understand, but kind of reveals two ways to approach the future, two ways to approach tomorrow. He says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We all do that. I can't wait for tomorrow. I'm going to do this. Summer's coming. I'm going to get this vacation. I can't wait to get this job promotion next year. And when this happens and my kids are grown up and I'm able to do that, we do that all the time. It says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes. He says, instead, it's like there's a different way to live. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live or do this or that. If nothing else, you know what that reveals? Someone who has communion with the Lord. As they think about the future, okay, Lord, is this what we're going to do tomorrow? I'll do this, Lord, if that's your will Every decision, every moment, thinking about Christ's return, thinking about my relationship with God, not expecting tomorrow or the next day according to your own desires. But he says more, right? Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. He says, as it is, like what we do, you boast in your arrogance. When we think about boasting, we think about pride, like, I'm pretty awesome, I did this or that. Like, that's how we think about boasting. But he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So, what I understand, James, is that declaring future stuff apart from what the Lord will will is evil. Making my plans apart from the Lord, having expectations apart from the Lord about the future is evil? Boasting? Wow. So he says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him it is sin. Okay. That verse has been taken out of context a lot. Like what, what does that mean? What's the right thing to do? I guess it's a right way of thinking. So what are the right things to do as I think about the future? The end of all things? So Peter's going to give us some like, here's what you should do in light of the end coming and the return of Jesus. And I always think it's interesting to consider the things that the authors of Scripture don't say. And by that, I mean the authors of inspired Word of God. So, the things that God doesn't say. Consider, if we were to have the mentality that the end of all things is near, like we're like, okay, I I believe the end of all things is near, the return of Christ is imminent, okay, what would you say Christians should devote themselves to? Like, as we wait for the return of Jesus, which can happen tomorrow, Christians should do this. And that blanking can be filled with lots of things. And I would argue that we could probably fill it with lots of good things, but they may not be God things. Wait, is there a difference between a good thing and a God thing? Well, Peter here is not going to give us some like... um, Here's some suggestions of what you can do with your time. Let's just say for hypothetical argument that what Peter's going to tell us are commands. Oh, I don't know if I like that because if it's a command, then I'm actually obligated to obey it. If it's a command, there's a line that gets crossed where I'm actually disobedient and neglectful of what God's commanded me to do. I mean, if it's not a command, I can go, yeah, I'll get around to it. If it is a command, we don't have that choice. But that's how we approach Scripture, isn't it? Like, well, he doesn't really mean do that. That's not really a command. It's just a really strong encouragement, right? I would argue that he's given us some commands about how to live as we set our minds that the end of all things is near. This is what we are to do while we suffer being Christians, and whatever that means, as we prepare for the return of Jesus. And he's going to say some things that might surprise you. Three things: love one another, show hospitality to one another, serve one another. Now, wait, that's not what I would have filled the blank with in. I would have said, like, serve the poor, uh, evangelize to the lost. Like I said, a lot of good things. But he's kind of putting some things in some priority order here of what is most important. So, first thing he says, verse 8, above all. Well, that tells you what's most important. Like, whatever thing you put in the blank that wasn't this, this is above that. Above all, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. So we're commanded to, above all, maintain an attitude of love toward one another. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are certainly called to love our neighbor. We're certainly called to love in the name of Jesus to anybody, but we are especially called. To love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says we are to do this earnestly, meaning constantly and continually. This is not just a moment of love, this is an attitude. This is a disposition towards God's people. Now, the Bible uses lots of things, kind of different metaphors, to describe God's people. Like, it's described as a field, it's described as a body, it's described as a gathering. And the most common metaphor is that of a household or family. You see, the Bible actually uses language that defines the church, God's people, less by actually what we do in the world and more by who we are in relationship to one another. Now, there are lots of commands good commands, commands we should endeavor to obey, feed the poor help the sick, right? Visit the prisoners, feed the hungry, teach God's word, evangelize the lost, make disciples. But there are over 50 commands about how we are to relate to one another. And all of these commands actually can be summarized in the one command, which is to love one another. Now, it's interesting that he would state this. I find most often that commands of God come because we naturally don't do these things. Right? It's like hate each other. Like he doesn't have to tell us that. We, we have difficulty loving each other. Like it's, it's, it's easy, if you will, to be selfish. It's easy it, to not be loving. But just as we are called to decide to suffer before we suffer. Like when suffering comes, You don't have much decision. But what about a people that I'm going to decide to suffer for Jesus before actually I'm called to suffer? Okay, what about a people that decides to love before it's actually easy to love? Decides to love before there's opportunity to love. Decides to love before there's reason to love. That's what we're being called to here. This isn't just some, like, ordinary affection or, or sentimentality. It's actually a Jesus-powered gospel love. So the world has lots of definitions. Even when I say love, love one another, everyone kind of comes with an idea of what that means. But the gospel gives us the picture of what true love actually looks like and feels like in Jesus. Gospel love is something tangible. Like when we say, Jesus loves us, we don't go, oh, that feels really good. That's where Jesus loved us. Like there was tangible, like he died. He suffered. He endured. When we talk about gospel love, we're talking about a sacrificial, costly love. We're talking about a love that tells the truth. Like Jesus didn't come down and go, oh, we'll just kind of overlook your sins. No, he came down and died for them. He's like, yeah, you're a sinner, but I love you. My love is way bigger than your sin, but yeah, it's pretty bad. It's truthful love. Gospel love is active love, right? It's initiating love. It's not like, well, I'll wait till you clean yourself up, then I'll love you. I'll wait till you're easy to love, then I'll love you. Go ahead and see how that works in a marriage. I mean, my wife has always been perfectly lovable, so it's easy to love her. And me too. So ours is just amazing, always. I'm sure she would say that about me, right? But gospel, okay, here's here's, gospel love is love without expectation of reciprocation. Like when I, when I actually committed to my wife before the Lord at our vows, you know what our vows said? I'll love you as long as you're alive. That's it. I didn't say I'll love you as long as you love me. I'll love you as long as you're nice to me. I'll love you as long as you're faithful to me. I'll love you as long as you don't get, you know, big and ugly. I'm not attracted to you. I didn't say any of those things. I said I will love you because my love for you is based on my conviction and belief in the Lord and on me. That's gospel love. Gospel love is love that is sanctifying. It changes us and it's love that's impartial. Ephesians 4 2 describes gospel love in the context of the church, and it says, love that bears with one another, that bears with one another through difficulties and disappointments and even differences. Like when we are going, I'm going to decide to love you. All too often in the context of the church, you're like, well, we have this difference. I'm out of here. You've disappointed me. I'm out of here. This is dip, this is too hard. I, I don't want to. Pre- I'm out of here. That's not love. That's not love. We press in. Do you know the the great love chapter, of First Corinthians 13, that every non-believer in the world says, you know, we should probably put that love chapter in there on a card or something. They don't even believe it. But Christians do it too and completely take it out of context. Do you know 1 Corinthians 13 lands between 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 14, which is a whole section about the gathering of the church and the interactions of the church with one another. It's not like, you know, all these things happening. like, oh, by the way, let's put a love like a little marriage thing in there. No, it's not bad to use in in a marriage ceremony or wedding, but that's not actually what the original purpose was for. It was describing the love that is to exist in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. And the kinds of things it describes, oh, we are to be patient with one another. We're not to insist on our own way with one another. We're not to resent one another. We are, in fact, to believe all things and bear all things and hope all things and endure all things. Why? Because that love description is exactly what Christ did with us. He looked beyond our mess and he looked beyond our brokenness. He looked beyond all that and said, I am going to choose to love you, though man, you're unlovable right now. But in choosing to do that, you know what happened? We were changed. We were changed by his love, by his decision to love before it was easy to love. The world doesn't understand this kind of love because the world doesn't know Jesus' love. But like Jesus' love, right? This is why Peter can say, love of this nature covers a multitude of sins. Which means this kind of love, not any kind of love, but gospel love empowers us to work through the sin that relationships inevitably give rise to. It helps us to work through that as we choose to overlook some things, as we choose to forgive some things, as we choose to confront some things, as we choose to cover those sins with love, not cover them up, but confront them and forgive them. Did you know in John 13, which is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture, the night Jesus is betrayed, arrested and sentenced to die, one of the last things he did with his disciples is wash their feet. Even the one disciple who would betray him. And then he said some things which you think, okay, well, if it's my no, because Jesus knew, like, his, his death was coming. Typically, when you're on your deathbed, if you will, like, the last things you say are some of the most important things. And what did he say to his disciples? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That was an amazing statement. We like the first one. We ignore the second one a little bit. Right? This is my suggestion, guys, for things to go easy. No. This is my commandment I give to you. Love one another as I have loved you." And then he says, this is going to be the identifying mark that you are my disciple. Really? How do I know that I'm a disciple of Jesus? I thought it was like memorizing verses, having some kind of Bible knowledge or service. He says the identifying mark, the primary identifying mark is that you love one another. And then he even says that is actually the greatest tool for evangelism. That other people will see, man, those people love each other. Man, those people sacrifice for one another. Man, they forgive one another in ways that that is not like normal. Because it's not like normal in a broken world it's like Jesus who was perfect and sinless and the world can't handle to see that it gets worse or better however you peter gets more specific right it doesn't end there you want to be countercultural right you want to be countercultural in the northwest where no one wants to talk to anybody did you know that it's not actually Jesus-like love? It's not actually loving if that attitude doesn't actually lead to action. This is why Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 2,000 years ago, he had to tell them not grumble about it. Because it's hard. Did you know historically the early church uh, was characterized by Hospitality. You're like, what what do we mean by that? Well, just practically speaking, we're talking about receiving and, and treating guests and strangers like family as you invite them close, as you invite them into your home. Now, back in the early church, right, they had nothing but one another. That's all they had. They didn't have big buildings. They didn't have big programs. They didn't have like, you know, even polished services with great music and okay sermons. They didn't have that. They had each other. They would gather in their homes and they would employ really the only tool they had, their table. Their table. And it was in their homes, around their tables, where brothers and sisters would share food and share drink and share faith and share their lives. The table is where, in the most amazing way, strangers Guests turned into friends and eventually became family. And the thing that we have to understand is that the commands of God are given to us because they reveal what we actually need. And this command to hospitality actually reveals that we all need to love and we all need to be loved this way. Now, hospitality a very powerful thing. I didn't fully grasp it until I became a pastor because it's an elder qualification. I'm like, oh, I better do this. And I didn't fully grasp it. I really didn't know. It wasn't my in my nature. It wasn't in, in Kalen's nature. We just kind of like, okay, be, we're going to be obedient. And it became the biggest blessing of my journey of 12 years of ministry. And it's, it's a blessing, like, it's a two-way blessing. First of all, if you are inviting to someone home, like, that invitation communicates so much. And I especially mean the invitation to those that you don't really know that well, though I would argue you still may know them and it's still the same message. When you invite someone in to share your table with you, like, that's, that's a, you're communicating like, I, I see you as equal. I see you as valuable. I see you as important. I love you. I want to know you. Like, really? That's, it says all that? Yes. Just the invitation. It's powerful. And it's interesting that in this text, because it's different than other texts that talk about hospitality. Other texts speak about it as inviting strangers into your home. And this one emphasizes the idea of one another. So it's not just strangers, it's actually brothers and sisters of Christ who gather in the same church and commit to being the same family. It's the practical way to go, okay, I want you to love one another earnestly. He says, show hospitality. This is a way to love earnestly, a way to love tangibly and intentionally. As we fellowship with one another, I don't know if you've done this very often, but my experience has been this, you start to hear one another's stories. And it's interesting, as we come on Sunday, we can be kind of unknown to one another. I've seen that girl, that guy, often, like, they, you talk to him like, hey, you're new here. And they're like, no, I've been here for six months. You're like, oh, okay, That's awkward. But oftentimes you see people like, I ain't talking to you. Don't tell me you don't have that thought. Because I know we do. Like, uh, I'm just too uncomfortable or they look too weird or just different. uh, Whatever. Have you ever sat down with somebody? I have done it very often. And you hear their stories. You just fall in love with them. Because suddenly you know them beyond just a face. Beyond just some awkwardness right? You hear their story. And more than that, you hear their Jesus story. And in many times, like, um, you hear what the heart actually needs and and they need encouragement. Maybe they need some comfort. Maybe they need some admonishment. I, I don't know. But what I've found is oftentimes, I actually get what I didn't even know I needed. They start sharing their story and they're like, yeah, well, this thing happened and you're like, they're sharing some really difficult trials in their life and all these things are like, yeah, but, but God is faithful. And you're like, I am a pitiful Christian. Like, I, you like, are amazing. I, I'm encouraged. I've been throwing myself this really awesome pity party and now you're sharing me the story that's, that's actually affecting my faith as I hear truth and begins to implant my heart and then change my life because you shared your story. That's the power of the table. And this is pretty impossible to do on Sunday mornings. You can't have those kinds of exchanges. The table is the place where we can most easily know each other and rejoice with one another and weep with one another and pray with one another. It's the place where we really come to know the true needs and meet those needs of our brothers and sisters. And sometimes you see people need recognition for hard work. Sometimes they need encouragement to press on. I've shared before, like this last year of ministry was so hard. It was the hardest year of ministry I've had in 12 years. And there were many times where the thing that gave me the encouragement to press on was simply good friends, namely Mark and Cheryl Hoxo, but there were certainly others who just say, Come on over. And I'd come over there and, be yeah. like, yeah, here's a glass of wine. Oh, that's better, right? <laughs> but they would just encourage and they didn't have to. It wasn't like like Mark gave me this these five points that I you know knew. No, he just loved on us. That's powerful. Like, okay, that's all I needed. Just you can do this. Some people need comfort when they lose something, be it a job, be it a dream, be it a loved one. And some just need a good laugh to lighten the mood. And some just need good food. I've been invited many times over to Shane and Kandra's house. And every time I get the invitation, like, we're going to eat good tonight, right? But it's like a blessing. You just go there and sometimes you're just weary or disappointed. And sometimes you're the one who's encouraging the weary and disappointed. That's powerful. At times you're going to need to remind people of the gospel if they're a little too full of themselves. And that sometimes you're going to need to remind people of the gospel if they're beating themselves up. The gospel can be used in both ways. But essentially, what does Peter say? hey, as you're living in this world and it's hard and you're suffering and going through difficulty, draw close to one another. And Peter has to say, do this without grumbling because it's too easy for us to complain about the cost. We make all kinds of excuses for it and I make my own and you make yours to justify our selfishness ultimately in our disobedience. And I realize there's some life stages where people are just unable to do it, and that's not the people I'm talking to. We are often afraid at of the cost to lose our privacy, to lose our time, to lose our food, our money, or just our routines, right? We guard it like this barbarian horde is going to come and attack, and I need my castle protected. My privacy is mine, my routine is mine. I would argue your privacy is the Lord. Your routine is yours. Your food is the Lord's. Your money is the Lord's. Your house is the Lord's. Your table is the Lord's. You are the Lord's. So you can't use that excuse. But in order to like make it so impossible, we fill our schedules with good things. And I mean that, good things. We fill our schedules with good things, but we fill it so full of good things that God doesn't command we actually make it impossible for us to do the things that he does. The simple truth is we struggle to love people like we've been loved. But I will assure you, it is a blessing if you press into it to you and to those you bless. And you don't need a big house to do it. You don't need a big meal to do it. And for many of us, you need to hear, you don't need a big clean to do it. My house is too messy. My house is too small. Wrong, 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 wrong. Sometimes you just need to invite some of those people into your normal life routines. And I would encourage us to especially invite those who are single, those who are widowed. There are many people who come here on Sunday and they leave alone. We don't think about. I would encourage you, at least invite them into your normal rhythms. You're just going to come hang out with my kids. It's going to be crazy. You're going to wonder why I'm a pastor, but hey, whatever. Just come and be messy with us. You just need a little faith. All right, as we close, verse 10. As we wait for Jesus' return, right? That's the, the guiding thing. As we wait... For the end of all things, we are to love one another and invite people in close to our homes and into our lives. And he says, You're to serve one another. He says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, nor that everything God has glorified through Jesus Christ. Did you know when Jesus saves people out of the world, when he takes them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, when he adopts them into his family, he gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is sent into us, a third person in the Trinity, to dwell in us. He is, by according to Jesus, the comforter, the advocate, the teacher, the one who helps us to actually love God and love people. He is the one, the Holy Spirit, who confirms our identity in Christ, who empowers us to live like Christ. And according to Scripture, the Holy Spirit gives us these things called spiritual gifts. Now, it's important to understand when we speak of spiritual gifts, we're not talking about natural talents, we're not talking about skills and abilities, all of which have also been given by God. But these other things, these supernatural things called spiritual gifts that have come as a result of your salvation. And the Bible teaches that these gifts were given to equip the church and to build the church and to do the ministry of the church. And Ephesians 4 tells us that when every part of the church, when everyone is exercising their gifts that they've been given by the Holy Spirit, everyone grows and matures and is built up in what? Love. And as the body grows up in love, it displays a more beautiful picture of God's kingdom on earth. And although as you read Scripture in 1 Corinthians and in Romans, there's lists of spiritual gifts and people argue about how many there are and there's tests to determine what they are, Peter puts in basically two categories. He says, They're speaking and they're serving. So God has given you one or the other in some form, some fashion. And he says those who speak, right, have some sorts of spiritual wisdom, ability to speak truth effectively. And it doesn't have to be preaching. That doesn't have to be Bible study. Maybe you're that person, like my wife, who's like a Jedi master and speaking truth and goes, whoa, and speaks something like Oh my gosh, that's what I needed to hear. That's a gift. Or maybe you're the person that serves with the strength that the Lord gives you. And it might be a very visible service that we see. It might be a very invisible service that we see. But it's a service that is a gift of the Lord. Energy that comes from the Lord. What you are doing. Whether you are the person serving by cleaning this building, whether you are the person serving coffee, whether you're the person greeting at the door, whether you're the person teaching our children downstairs, whether you're the person playing music and proclaiming the truth of God through song, all of that, whether we see it or don't, is gospel kingdom work. Every Christian has a gift that's what the bible says and every church needs every gift so that means that every christian in every local church is valuable and essential like you think like what do i have to offer you have the gifts that god has given you to bless others and many of us sit we get this gift Like, oh, look what I got. This is awesome. And then we just kind of set it down and leave it there wrapped on a table. I wonder what's in that box, right? This was not given for you. It was given for everybody else. And your unwillingness or fear, whatever it is, to unwrap that baby and start using it, it's actually preventing all of us from growing and being built up. You have something to offer. That's what the Bible says. You have something to give. You have something to contribute. It's given for more than just you, but it will bless you, but it's given as a blessing to others. But more than just bringing our church up in maturity, more than just displaying God's kingdom on earth. The stewarding of your gift actually helps fulfill the mission of God. If you have your Bible, Acts chapter 2 has a great picture. We're going to go through the book of Acts this summer. I'm so excited. Really only like the first third of Acts, but we will return to it. We go through slow. Acts 2.42 This is after Peter has preached his first sermon, which in summary was Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead, repent and believe. There you go. That's the summary version. Very simple. 3,000 people come to faith and suddenly they're functioning in this body of people that didn't exist prior. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says, here's their first responses, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So there's some guys using their teaching gifts, their speaking gifts, and fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and prayers. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were what? Together. They were together. And they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had how did they know each other's needs? Oh, they were together talking at tables, hearing, and, "Oh, you have a need? Oh, let me help you." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. What? They didn't have a building? They were in each other I, no one had a home holding 3,000 people, I guarantee you that. So they were gathering at homes, sharing each other's needs, knowing each other's stories. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Okay, wait a second. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, where was the evangelism program in there? Right? Where, where was the, you know, we're going to go out and, and, and street evangelize and like, that didn't seem to be happening yet. Because what is happening is as the leaders and its members actually stewarded the gifts that they've been given to speak and to serve, as they actually loved one another in tangible ways, the mission of the church was accomplished by God. What's the mission of the church? To reconcile more people to God. It's the Great Commission. It's to go and make disciples and to baptize them into God's family and to teach them to obey all Jesus commanded. This is not some individual instruction or just something for foreign missionaries, it's a collective mission given to the church. God's people working together, obeying the great commandment to love one another as they fulfill the great commandment or commission to share God's love. As they did that, as they functioned in love, as they showed hospitality to one another, as they talked about God's word, as they ate food and drank and prayed and met each other's needs, the church grew. People came to know Jesus. And let me tell you some crazy things. Did you know that when that mission is fulfilled, the end of all things will come and Jesus will return? Well, that's crazy. Well, that's what Jesus said, right? Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So let me just put this thought out there. Insofar as you are choosing to love God's people, insofar as you are showing hospitality to God's people and using not the things you don't have, but the things you already have to love one another in tangible ways, as you are stewarding your gifts, you are actually Actively contributing to the gospel going forth into the world and ushering the return of Jesus Christ. Just by showing hospitality and using my gifts? Yes. Because we make it so complicated, right? Like, well, in order to show faith, I've got to do this incredible gospel work. And I've got, let me tell you what the incredible gospel work is. Loving others as Christ has loved you. That's it. And in doing that, the gospel goes forth. We must love one another. We must show hospitality to one another. We must serve one another through and by the power of God for the glory of God to reveal the beauty of the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, as we take communion, I want to connect this all. We go through communion as a routine. I think, too often because we don't think about it. We think of it as just a memorial. We think of it as just a symbol. It is a symbol. It is a memorial. It is pointing back to the death of Jesus and, and the forgiveness and atonement of Jesus' blood. Yes, it is, it is pointing to that. But it's, it's a proclamation of something beyond that. It's a proclamation of a truth that we need in our heads so it changes our hearts and changes how we live. This is what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 about what Jesus did at communion. It says, Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take that bread, go, this is Jesus in my place. His body broken, so I didn't have to be. And he says, in the same way he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant, my blood. This is how we get relationship with our Lord. He dies in my place. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he says this, for as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Yes, communion is a proclamation of Jesus' death for us, of Jesus' forgiveness, of Jesus' love, all those things, but also a reminder that the end of all things is coming, that Jesus is returning. As you pick up that bread, Christian, this is for believers. This is for those who know Jesus. This is for people who believe Jesus is coming again and he could come any moment. And more than that, you hope that he comes this moment. That'd be really cool. It'd be like, just like I said, right? It'd be the best sermon illustration ever. But as you lift the bread, you are proclaiming something. And we also come to the table together. So we're all proclaiming it. And as you proclaim, Jesus is going to return. You're also proclaiming, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you and love you. Oh, that guy took communion. I'm going to love you. We participate in communion every Sunday because we need to renew our thinking every Sunday. And so every Sunday we proclaim through communion that Jesus died and he alone is the way and the truth and the life. But more than that, we proclaim that the world is ending. Jesus is is coming. And so we say, just as John did, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. I want to experience the fullness of your love. And until then, I will love like you loved me. Amen. Let's pray.